Thought Bubble Audio. Hi, and welcome to Read Up, the podcast where we talk about books intellectually and stuff. I'm Tim, and joining me this week is recurrent guest Scott from the Suicide Squadcast. How are you today, Scott? I'm, I'm, I'm very good, Tim. Did you finally take your medicine like a man? I did take my medicine, and it was delicious, despite <laughs> previous conceived notions. I know. That was the part that got me so excited when you, when you decided to read the book that we're discussing today. I was like, just just. Do it seriously. Just do it. So here's the thing. So we're so we are today discussing The Shining by Stephen King. You know, Doctor the Doctor Sleep film is coming out. Uh, well, coming out on November eighth. I actually don't know when this episode is going to get released. So probably before Doctor Sleep. So it's coming out November eighth, and and so I was like, oh, I should. I have to read Doctor. I I have a copy of Doctor Sleep. You know, for a long time, I picked up for like three dollars at Ocean State Job Lot, which is a kind of a local chain to Rhode Island and Massachusetts. And so, I so I was like, oh, you know, I should I should read Doctor Sleep. And I was like, no, but I really should read The Shining because I keep I kept going back to it and always like I know the Kubrick film so well that I, I would get through the first chapter and I go, oh, my God, I know. And then I never could get through the rest of it. And so this time I was like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm plowing through the opening chapter with Dr. Ullman, uh, with uh, Mr. Ullman, and then I'm just going to see what happens. And I could not stop. Like, I literally could not stop. It became like a weird obsession for the short amount of time that I went through The Shining. It is such a good book. I mean, uh, you had, I, I felt like I probably like double dog dared you a little bit because I talked about how I was reading it and this was going to be my third time reading The Shining. That and... that does that does happen to me with you pretty frequently where you're like, you're reading a book and I'm like, I should read that book. And then I do. And then we end up talking about it. That happened with, that happened with Dune and Foundation, I think. Yeah, I'm just a bit – I'm I'm called peer pressure, and I'm here to make you a better person. That's fine. I mean, sometimes it works out in your favor, and sometimes it doesn't. So this is this is your third time on Read Up, right, Scott? It's my, yes, it is my third time on Read Up. Okay, so third time's the charm because it was – because Dune was – I like Dune. I didn't love Dune. And I, I loved Dune. Right, and I didn't – neither of us really cared for Foundation. No. Um, but we both are here for The Shining. Yes. Yeah. Like yes. like crazy here for crazy here for the shining. So like I uh, like I said third time reading this book. I think this now it, discounting books I've taught as a teacher. I think this book now holds the record for the book I've read the most times in my adult life. Really? It's that yes. big for you. Oh, this is so interesting. Okay. Well, so no, there's a, there's a whole story to this. I mean, I read it for the first time like it, I think it was either 2006 or 2007. It was the summer that Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows came out. And because you were I'm like, doing, that, I, I, that's over. I need to find an obsession with something else. <laughs> well, no, I, I was doing a play that summer. So, you know, you're sitting around backstage. I read. Yep. And, mm-hmm. and so I read The Shining. Then I think two years later, I, had, I was getting my master's for education. And I took a, my last grad school English class because they make you take 
graduate level English classes like that has anything to do with teaching English. It, and, literally nothing to do with teaching English. Nothing. nothing. Especially especially at the level you teach at. Like really. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I took a film and literature course that was Kubrick and Cronenberg. So Whoa. we watched we watched four movies by Kubrick, four movies by Cronenberg, and they were all adapted from novels. So we were watching eight movies and reading eight books that the movies were based on. And I, that was the second time I had read The Shining. What were the Kubrick? This being the third time. All right. What were the Kubrick films that you did? You must have done 2001. Yes. Um, 2000. What would you have done? 2001, The Shining. Barry Lyndon is no. not a novel. No. No. Uh, Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange. There and Lolita. Oh, he directed Lolita? I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a very un-Kubrick Kubrick film. Gotcha. That's why I didn't know it. Yeah. So those are those are the four Kubricks. Wow. That's that's a that without Cronenberg is a heavy like set list of, of films. That that is Oh, all right, here we go. Like I've, I've got to I'm like preparing myself. Like you know, it's almost like running a marathon. Where you're like, okay, shake it off, shake it off. Have a glass of milk. It's okay. Have a glass of milk. Um, whew, that was my Clockwork Orange reference for the day. But we're not here to talk about Clockwork Orange because that book's scary. We're here to talk about another scary book, The Shining. So let me read the back of it for people who don't people who don't know. Jack Torrance's new job at the Overlook Hotel is the perfect chance for a fresh start. As the off-season caretaker at the atmospheric old hotel, he'll have plenty of time to spend reconnecting with his family and working on his writing. But as the harsh winter weather sets in, the idyllic location feels even more remote and more sinister. And the only one to notice the strange and terrible voices gathering around the Overlook is Danny Torrance, a uniquely gifted five-year-old. It sounds... Yeah, I... It sounds this good, book, but it doesn't. It yeah. doesn't do. It, it does not do the book justice. This back flap. No, and I will tell you this: being my third time, and my first time as a father reading this book. Oh yeah, this this book took on a whole new level of creepiness as a dad. You know that's that's funny that you say that because there are definitely this is not strictly related to The Shining, but I remember reading a, a like a like a. Post review of The Exorcist from uh, from just a few years ago, and and he, this guy was writing, and he was like, oh, you know, I everyone always says, oh, scariest movie of all time, scariest movie of all time, scariest movie of all time. He's like, so I finally watched it, and he's like, it was not scary. Like I like don't like. He's like, I did not understand what people were talking about. Then he became a dad and watched it again, and it was like scariest movie of all time because now it's not just about a movie about a demon possessing a girl. Now it's about how am I going to react to this as a parent? Like what would I do in this situation? And so I think the shining fits almost, it kind of fits into that mold, except that. So you can now look at it as if, as if you were Danny, but now if you're a parent, you can look at it as if you're Wendy or Jack. Yes. Especially when my oldest is six and Danny is five in this book and that kind of puts a creepy perspective when you can you when you have very in your face evidence of what what Danny is who mm -hmm. Danny is when you go wow he's 5 and he's going through all of this right well i do you think that do you think that he's a realistic 5 
Be, being a parent of somebody uh, of of a child who is six, is he a realistic five year old? He definitely he is more realistic than not. It was interesting because he talks about his reading, and that was the only thing that I thought was like they were talking about second grade readers. And I'm like, when you're five, you're in kindergarten, but yet his ability to read, like that, kind of fit at least with my kid. Of course, I'm an English teacher, so my kid learned to read really quickly. Of course, yeah. So that, so no, I mean, there were, there were, there were things that, of course, I've never put my child through the things that Jack put Danny through at an even younger age. So I feel like that there is a need for Danny to have grown up sooner. That would, I would say, maybe makes it a little bit more realistic than normal. You know, okay. With with ja- with with Jack's alcoholism, and also I think another way you can get away with it in the book is because of his shine, he's being exposed to things that a five year old normally wouldn't be exposed to. He's he he's aware of things that a five year old would not normally be aware of, but because of his um, psychic ability. You know, he's more tuned in than a normal five-year-old would be. I think that kind of becomes your way of, you know, explaining that away. Yeah, I agree. That's kind of where I landed, too. And the book definitely wants you to land in that same place. Like, I know he, like, it's, it's King's almost saying, like, I know he's five, but it's okay because he has The Shining. Yes. Yeah. Um. When, when was the first time you read this? Uh, it was like 2006 or 2007. And then what was it, was your reaction? Because because you said you were doing that you were doing the play, and then so what? How was your reaction different from the first time that you read it versus now as a father? Uh, there was that I was more scared for Danny because I had that emotional connection to oh my god, Danny's like my kid. And there was also a little bit of creepiness of kind of understanding Jack a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Like when you've when you've been working, maybe you've gone through some dark times in your personal professional career. It's like Jack is Jack still becomes a monster, but you almost have more empathy for Jack. Yep, I because I you found see that. where it's coming from. And then especially the differences between the way Jack is in the book as opposed to the way Kubrick does Jack in the movie, you you see Jack as a more tragic figure in the book, and you could empathize and feel sad for him, especially with sort of that sacrificial scene towards the end, and we can talk about that later. Yeah, I agree, and I think um, I have a different segment. We'll do like a different segment where we talk about uh, – the book in comparison to Kubrick's film and then to the um, to the um, miniseries that was on ABC in the 90s. So f- just here in this book, I think I am with you in that Jack is I find him more of a tragic figure here than a monster, because especially when he is t- kind of taken over by, quote, the manager, uh, he like Danny says in the book or the narrator says like, he's not Jack anymore. He's not my father. You know, he's not any of these things. He's just the manager. And so it, it like he succumbs to the hotel, but not 
he doesn't even really ever get a choice of succumbing to the hotel because by the time that he walks into the ballroom and it's you know the the unmasking party and all of this stuff and he's like Lloyd give me some give me some Martians you know give me some martinis he he's already there you know like the hotel already has him by the time he makes it to that party by the time he's the murderous monster actually the narration does he stops calling him jack it refers to him as it because danny's even saying you're not my dad you're not my daddy and the narration is calling it it does this it does that Mm. And, and and i think that's a great distinction of going yeah jack's not home anymore no no he's not and so it sounds like they would, you know, in the film, like, here's Johnny. Like, that's, he, he is literally not there. He's nothing anymore. And especially when he takes the Roke mallet and he smashes his face, right? Yes. And so I thought that was oh, horrible and amazing. But it's funny because when, when you, when so many people think of The Shining, they think of the film. Uh, and I guess here, I think it's actually because the film is so well known to both of us. I think it's hard to not talk about the film and the book at the same time. So I think we can just kind of we can merge both right now. Um, it's so hard to it's so hard to separate them. You know, like you know, oh, The Shining. He tries to kill his family with an axe, and everyone like. But I think, and so when you hear that it's actually a roke mallet, and then you have to explain, well, it's kind of like a croquet mallet, but it's got a rubber end on one side. It, like, you can almost see people's eyes start to like fade they're like that's not as interesting and i like after finishing the book i'm like oh this that's actually more interesting i think it's scarier because because he can hit them he can hit them and not immediately kill them that's right it it becomes more torturous because this book is a it's a slow burn and a page turner at the same time because the it's dripping with this atmosphere that you, you it's like you feel Jack's descent into madness. You feel Jack losing his soul to the hotel. And then when he becomes the monster at the end, it's just it's it's painful because he can hit everyone and keep attacking and they're not going to die cuz he's making them suffer but he's not killing them. That's right. And that's that I think is that's worse because a a quick death by somebody that you love or even just a quick death in general is not as in a way is not as horrifying. So to just have so like so for Wendy's instance like to be like smacked by the croquet ma- uh, to, by the roke mallet and those ribs now the ribs are broken and your legs hurt and all in your ba- and like in your d- back is fractured and like you can as a reader you can almost understand that pain but i'd have a hard time understanding what it feels like to be hit by an axe right but we a lot of just by being human you've experienced blunt trauma before so now it's scarier because you can feel it along with the characters like i don't know what it's like to have like an axe swung into your face but i can kind of imagine what it's like to be hit with a roke mallet in the face right because i've been smacked with who knows what kind of things you know in the face or i've or i've jammed my finger with a hammer when i've missed the nail you know Mm -hmm. and just imagine that on a larger scale on a bigger part of my body that is now broken 
Yep, exactly. Oh, I, the stuff that I've had, to, the stuff that I've done, boy, it hurts. So here's my question. Do you think that The Shining plays its hand early? Like, can you see, or do you remember re- in 2006, can you see where it's all going right away? And is that, does that, is that a strength of the book or not? You know, because they, he sure does mention that boiler an awful lot. And he sure does mention Roke several times and things like that. Right. And and I don't the the boiler I think was cool because I think, I think it was hot, time... Scott. I think it was hot. That's what you're trying oh, to get at. Because it you, it goes explodey. You're you're just you insolent pup. You're just trying to sabotage me. I see how this is going. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. Take your medicine, Scott. Take your medicine. Anyway. Continue. But when I think what happens though is that when I read the book, I of course had seen the movie. So there were certain things that were already telegraphed to me from seeing from seeing the the, the the Kubrick film. And then I but I do believe that the boiler, while I think it's foreshadowed very well, you get the sense that something's important about the boiler, but when it, it when it gets to the end though, it's still that cool moment when it goes especially the chapter is what he forgot. And then you're like, Oh the boiler <laughs> You know, it, it, it's 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 kind of cool though because even if you start to realize it, it's like that ticking clock of, oh yeah, he hasn't let he hasn't let off the boiler today, has he? There it is. And, Actually, yeah, keep going. But you you said something that I wanna I wanna come back to. But keep going with your thought. But but that's the thing is that even if he's foreshadowing it, it at whatever point that you particularly catch on to it. I think it actually isn't a oh this is what's going to happen. It's more of a. Oh God! When is this going to happen? It, there's still suspension. There's still tension because you know where it's headed. You just—it becomes that clicking, that ticking clock mentality of so. When's it going to get there? When are we going to realize it? And then what's going to happen when that all comes together? And it's you, the, yeah. it's the beauty of the climax of, oh God, this place is going to blow. And you said perfectly. You said it's the ticking clock mentality, and that plays. A, that's a that's a huge motif that kind of runs through the story because it's actually layers of countdowns, right? Yes. It's, you know, it's it's when when is Jack going to snap? When is the boiler going to explode? When uh when are the ghosts going to cause harm? When is winter going to come? When are they going to get stuck? When is and there's Kevin, a clock in the ballroom and there it is, literally and it, ticking away. And the clock in the ballroom is literally ticking away, but it only really that clock really only comes into play when important things happen. So it's like an understood countdown. And then when you the clo- the physical clock comes into play in the novel, that's when like time starts to even speed up a little bit, where everything really starts to coalesce and come together. And that I think is is really cool. And I I in a way the kubrick film does that too because stephen king doesn't he famously doesn't like it cuz he says like you know that jack torrance is going to murder that family in the movie because jack nicholson looks and acts like he's going to murder them from the opening scene like so his transformation is not really so startling it's more like oh when how creepy is he going to be when it happens um but the beauty of the book is that Jack Torrance is a regular guy or as regular as, you know, it gets in in Stephen King's land. And 
you can empathize and sympathize with him because he's just a guy trying to do right by his family as much as possible. And yeah, he's messed up quite a bit. But as we said before, he's very he's he's an empathetic figure, you know, and the the feud underlying like tension between him and Wendy is very real. You know, yeah. it it feel it feels authentic, you know, so even without ghosts and hauntings and the shining and all this stuff, that picture of American family like we're good over here. It's great. We're picturesque American family. And the, the dark subtlety of their relationship is very authentic. And so the countdown is as opposed to more as opposed to more thrilling is actually more tragic in the book. And I, that's what I really care for. Yeah, and this is another, and Jack is another one of those Stephen King proxy characters that he likes to write into mm-hmm. a lot of, especially his early work, where it's like, this is a shape, this this is Stephen King, you know, especially if you know anything about his personal life and his own struggles with addiction, and you can totally see that he's in the middle of, he's in the middle of the stuff, and yes. he's mm-hmm. writing this into his characters. I mean, this was his third novel, let that sink in. This is his third go at it, as far as novels are concerned, and he 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 basically is like, here is the ugly version of me, and yeah. I'm making him the protagonist of the novel. I mean, really, I mean, it, his first one was Carrie, then Salem's Lot, which was an adaptation of a short story, Jerusalem's Lot, and then The Shining, and then The Stand right after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that talk about a. Talk about a, a string of of winners there. I know. I mean, the top four really are the ones. Maybe Salem's Lot, not as much, but Carrie, Shining, Stand are really some of the ones that get talked about more than others. Yes. Like when people talk about, you know, if people don't appreciate his newer work and they talk about when Stephen King was, quote, good. You know, that's a subjective that's a subjective mm-hmm. statement. But when people think of Stephen King, they're actually usually thinking about his something in his first four novels, usually. Usually. And th- that's also the time in which he was kind of at his worst, you know, yes. the, the drugs, the alcohol, everything. And you talked about, you know, Jack as a proxy character, but it's like it's not even subtle. Like he's a former teacher who is now a writer who has a young son and the shining is even dedicated to Steven's like son, Joe, it says, um, for this is for Joe, uh, Hill King who shines on. Yes. Who interestingly enough is, you know, a best-selling novelist right now in his own right. Yeah. Joe Hill's great. I, I enjoy, I enjoy Joe for Joe's style is different and I enjoy it for, I enjoy him for him, which instead of, him for being the son of Stephen King, which is pretty great. Yeah. So that's so that's a thing that I find just so engaging about the novel. And I remember, and this is going to be completely, this is blasphemy for so many people. But I remember the first time I saw the movie, probably like in the early 2000s, was the first time I saw the, the Kubrick film. And I was not terribly impressed. I no, was not. That is blasphemy. Tell me more, because I, <laughs> I will fight you. I, I'm not, and I'm not looking for a fight. I'm just saying, personally, I, I think it it was a victim of expectations. Like you've heard about this movie for so long, mm-hmm. and then you finally see it, and you're just kind of like, okay, that that was a that was a movie, 
And I and it was also my very first Kubrick experience as well. So it was there, there was a whole lot of first going on there. And then I go and read the book and these kind of things we've been talking about, like how this is more of a descent for Jack as opposed to, like you said, yeah, you watch Jack Nicholson in the movie and it's like, yeah, you're crazy. Yeah. I think you're crazy from the first time I see you. Right. In fact, he almost it's almost the opposite where he kind of like ascends to the self that he like wants to be. As opposed to, like, the Jack of the book that, it, like, is struggling with all his might to not succumb to the darkness, whether that be alcoholism or, you know, um, you know, a murderer, you know, whatever. Or the, miso- or the, or the underlying, or the misogyny or the fear of he literally becomes his own father. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, there's so much there. It, because it's a book. And that's always the thing when you get into adaptation. But because of the book, just the layers, the layers upon layers, the onion that is this novel. And I feel like every time I read it, which is, like I said, third time's the charm, I just – I'm still peeling more back every time. Yeah. See, it's funny that you say his father because I literally just finished it a couple of days ago and I already forgot that that was, that was a key because I didn't take notes, you know, because – I'm not a monster. Um, also, I gotta take notes for the books I gotta read for work. So, um, this is fun. Dang it! Um, you're right, though, but he is—he is his father. That's an excellent point. Do you think that Wendy kind of gets mistreated in the book? I think she definitely gets mistreated in the film. See, uh, that's another thing for me. If we're doing the whole book versus movie comparison, is I feel like in the book she has she has more agency like she's she's not i've never particularly appreciated the depiction of wendy in the film and no it, i don't really nobody has i she it's not terribly it's not fondly remembered right and and neither is um and, and why am i blanking on the actress's name who played wendy in the film help me out here Oh, it's um. Oh my gosh, um. It's uh, olive oil. It's um. <laughs> she was in Nashville with Robert Altman. She um. Shelley Long. Jo- Shelley- no, Shelley. No, not no. Duca- not Shelley Winters. Shelley. Du- Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall. Yes. <laughs> Yay, we made it. Yeah, Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall. I mean, I feel like the Wendy as depicted in the book is is so much more. And she she stands up to Jack sooner. Like she's she's got she's not a she's not a whipping post. No, I mean, she's kind of a wet noodle in the film. But she she is she as she is as strong as you kind of would hope to be in a situation right. like that. And I feel the same for Danny as well. Especially when Danny gets his hero moment at the, in the book, where he's looking at the creature, as I'll refer to it, you mm-hmm. know. And well, you he's can like, refer to him as the manager because that is kind of what the um, the manager caretaker, manager caretaker, is yeah, kind of the, the the final form of the hotel, right? And then and, and Danny's just looking at it and like standing him down, and like the fact that Danny's able to like scream at the different ghosts and going false face, and they actually like wither away. Be, because it something that I also is not that's made very explicit towards the end of the book is that Danny is supercharging the hotel. The hotel can kind of do what it does because of Danny shining and how strong he is. Right. 
his ability to shine so strongly is uh, is literally supercharging the 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 demons of the hotel. And then, but at the end, he's able to use that against them because he has that power. He can basically banish them away and stand up to them, which you know Danny never gets really. I feel like in the movie, he, they're just scared and they run around. They, they're scared and they run away. And in the book, I just get the sense that they just really fight back. Yep, yeah, you know that's a, the movie is really about them running and kind of making it out by the skin of their teeth, but not for any real ingenuity or strength. And the book is kind of like we're pretending. To, the book is almost like we're we're pretending that we're okay. And by the end of the book, even though the family dynamic has completely shifted because Jack has, you know, gone crazy and trying to murder his family, they've kind of found themselves. And, you know, or at least Wendy has. Danny, Danny, arguably, you could, you know, because he's only five, you know, you know, he's got a lot of growing up to do still. And Dr. Sleep is really what kind of examine is kind of what examines that. Um, you know right. the effects of trauma on a child, and how much of your father are you really, or your parents generally? How much are you, and you know things like that. And Scott, if you're reading Doctor Sleep, you can come back and talk about Doctor Sleep with me. If you oh, like. oh oh, trust me. Well, as soon as we finish recording, I'm going to go and load the dishwasher, and I'm starting Doctor Sleep. Like oh, it's, excellent. It's, Yes, because Will Patton narrates the Doctor Sleep audiobook. Yes, and I'm he, looking forward yes, he to does. That. Yes, he does. I'm actually listening to the. I'm listening to the audiobook. Um, uh, I'm listening to the audiobook for that one. About halfway through, it, I mean, spoiler, I guess not really, or spoiler for a following episode. It's good. I'm not sure. It's definitely not The Shining, you know. Oh, so it's almost not. like that sequel expectation, but it's so vastly different from The Shining that it really kind of sits on its own. Like, yeah. I don't really even know if you have to read The Shining to get what Doctor Sleep is about. But it's also something that kind of the reason I'm reading The Shining is because the Dr. Sleep being a sequel to the novel The Shining, but then also the interesting line that I understand that Mike Flanagan, who's writing and directing the Dr. Sleep movie, is going to have to do, which is write a sequel, adapt a book that's a sequel to the book The Shining, while also paying homage to it as a sequel to the film, Mm -hmm. when the book and the film are so drastically different at points. They are. And -hmm. And I'm looking forward to watching that tightrope, because Mike Flanagan has already earned himself a ton of credit because he did another Stephen King, he wrote and directed another Stephen King adaptation Gerald's for Netflix. Game. Gerald's, Gerald's King, game, which was amazing. It was amazing. It was so good. It was, it's it's people don't maybe because it came out for Netflix, but people don't talk about it in the like new wave of King adaptations. And I just, it was so good. It's it's like really, it's really top notch. It's really good. So, I mean, so there's this idea of, you know, getting me to read a book for the third time so I can read another book that I'm reading for the first time so I can go watch a film that's going to be just an interesting specimen of adaptation that I don't think has ever been necessitated before. Mm-mm. Nope. It, it is truly a beast unto itself. But really... The only thing I think you really have to like pull or take away 
from making an adaptation we'll see what happens when the film comes out is kind of the aesthetic you know so like let's say the hotel the overlook hotel in kubrick's film doesn't look like it's really supposed to in in king's original novel you know the 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 carpets are different you know and the hotel is supposed to be kind of like this white you know almost like clean inviting look and the overlook just does not look inviting it actually looks horrifying right from the beginning uh and it's in its own vast emptiness and dated vast emptiness um so but i don't think that like so i know the rug is supposed to be like blue and black swirls or lines or whatever i that doesn't really matter to me you know because it doesn't actually hold weight in the story it doesn't even have any kind of symbolism it's just kind of there right so um so but there's I, other so, things that are kind of spoilery. I mean, I, I I don't know if you're listening to this episode. It's like, have you read the book already? Because I, I mean, I feel like we're gonna, we're spoiling things for you. So, but you know, there's other things like, okay, honestly, spoiler for a book that came out in like 1970 something. 77. But, you know, it's but it's like Dick Holleran survives. Like, yeah, he, big he, twist. He, Was not expecting that. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is funny because he's in the Doctor Sleep movie, played by Carl Lumley. <gasps> really? Yes. Oh, and that's been confusing so many people on Twitter because I'm like, no, you haven't read the book, have you? Okay, N- never mind. Yeah, because you know, in the in the you know in the book, as we've been discussing, the hotel blows up, right? You know, and in the trailer, they go back to the Overlook or right, something. Which... So, could be a dream sequence, though. We have not. I haven't gotten to that bit. In Doctor Sleep, but it could be like an entering the shining kind of moment. Maybe he's not physically back there. I uh, or that's just one of those where we're the give and take between the adaptation of the film and the adaptation of the novel kind of deal. Because you know the in the book the hotel blows up in the movie it's still there. In the movie Dick Halloran gets killed by the axe in. Which always seemed kind of pointless to why did he even show back up again? Well, like, I think what... it's like the – but it's the desperation. It's like, oh, my God, he's coming to save the day, and he doesn't. And that's where, like, true horror kind of sets in at that moment in the yes. film. And I think that's kind of – I feel like that's more the point where, like, all hope really is lost because their one chance of survival is is done. Dead. But it's really yeah, the, it's ho- the hotel that ends up causing his his – like his mental break is the thing that ends up killing him at the same time, which is which I guess is technically in a way the same in the in the um, novel too, you know, because he's he's he thinks that he it's good he saved the day and then but nope that hotel is is gonna go splooey it's gonna go it's gonna go bam bam yes and then it's even going to try to affect it's Dick. even gonna try to affect Dick that which you know that <laughs> moment I was one of the my favorite moments of the whole text because even though parts of the hotel are done with that it still has this aura and this presence and I like that the book doesn't really bother to explain why the hotel the way that it is it explains why the shining kind of how the shining kind of works in that you know the how people's presence and it feeds off of them and then you know things like that they're just images but then the stronger you are they will affect you things like that but um i i like that it doesn't bother to explain why this hotel is evil in a lot of ways it's 
a lot of ways it's not really a horror story. It's a it's a gothic story, right? It's this very yes. follow the House of Usher, uh, Mask of the Red Death plays, Death, which he references numerous times, numerous times throughout. It, I mean, he ref- I mean, heck, Jack references it himself. It's very metatextual that way. It's just like intertextuality. I'm in a big haunted hotel, and I'm going to talk about death coming for me because death's coming for me. But I'm also death incarnate because the hotel is death, and it's all the stuff. And yeah. I always thought I always thought that the book's explanation was just so much bad like you can't have that much bad crap go down in one place like hap- like w- when Jack is looking through the scrapbook which I want to talk about that Oh good I would also love to talk about the scrapbook good uh, but the scrapbook lays out basically that chapter is the history of the overlook and it's and you just learn about how that place has been shady almost since it began. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the idea that King is getting at is a place that has so much history and it's almost all bad. It, 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 it's like to make a reference. It's almost like a hell mouth. It's like you mm. can't have this much evil happening over and over and over again without it almost pooling. And, and seeping into the very being of a place. And then you get someone with the power to kind of light the match or, 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 or you know, like plug it in. And suddenly it gives it life. It be- because the people who have the sh- that slight shine to see it, even Dick says, well, it can't hurt you. They're just pictures. And that's where Danny becomes such an important part because his shine is just so incredible that he actually brings that evil. He he, they go from being shadows to being like ectoplasmically charged into life. Hmm, good he, ghost language you have going. That's good ghost language. So, and I feel like the, the scrapbook is the beginning of the end for Jack. Because the whole point of Jack is I need some time with my family to heal these wounds from two years ago breaking my three-year-old's arm because I was drunk at the time. Mm -hmm. And then not being drunk but still losing my temper and beating a student senseless because he was being a D-bag and and losing my job. And this is like my last chance to to try to salvage my writing career because he's writing this play. But when he gets the scrapbook – you notice he never talks – he almost never talks about the play ever again in the in the sense of he's actually working on it. it. It's the scrapbook is what starts an obsession with the hotel, and it draws him into the hotel. And I feel like that the scrapbook is another agent of the hotel saying, hey, forget about that play. That's something that could turn you into a better person and – and and put you on the path you're supposed to go. In. Come, come. It's like it's like the two girls in the movie saying, "Play with us, Danny." It's the scrapbook is the hotel saying, "Think about us, Jack, and think about only us. Don't you want to be a part of us?" And it's what starts to suck them in, and that's what I see the scrapbook as. Well, I I think it's great that you say that because they because Jack always asks, you know, like, oh, what is the you know, who owns the scrapbook? He calls Mr. Ullman and he's like, whose scrapbook is this? Who's this? And this is, and I think they actually, the hotel actually tells him, they're like, oh, we gave that, like, I think, maybe it was Mr. Grady says it, I think, but they're like, oh no, we gave you the scrapbook so you would know. So, you know, so you would understand. You could be part of us. You could be part of this, you know, charming and lovely organization that we have. 
And so everything, but like, I mean, even the, um, you know, things like doors opening and, you know, uh, and the rogue mallet appearing, every, everything that, that whether it's real or not. See, here's the question. The, is the scrapbook actually even there? Or is it like the martini glasses that don't exist at all? Ooh, I didn't even think about that. That is that that is intriguing to think about because no one else ever sees the scrapbook. No, he hides it from Wendy. Remember, he says like, "Oh, he's like, oh, you know, like for some inexplicable reason, he hides it from her, like he's doing something bad, even though he's not." But so he never actually shows anybody all that stuff. So I think they're just in his head, which which makes it even worse because that means the hotel has like the overlook has really like extended itself into the deepest part of his brain but long before he he snaps like he's right but they have also but they also indicate that he has a little shine too well sort of so remember what dick says that like you know he has something he doesn't really have what other people have you know like he like he doesn't exactly have Dick suspects that he has shine, but when he tries to like reach out and find out when he meets Jack, he says there's like an emptiness there, like he's which I think is something. his alcoholism. I think I think it's the addiction. I think it's the darkness. That's I feel like that's another statement of what parents can do to their children, and that's like that's his father. Oh, that's interesting. I kind of read that as that was the hotel already kind of taking shape within Jack. Like okay. there was some kind of hole that maybe caused by, you know, the the trauma in his life previous that opened itself up to the hotel. And that's why that hole was there. And the hotel was kind of protecting itself from Dick, if that makes sense, through Jack. Yeah, I I just felt like that happened so early in the book that the ho- that it not, that hadn't happened yet. But I, I think, but once again, it's literature; it's open to interpretation. That's the best part. Who's to say subjectivity is a wonderful, wonderful thing? Um, I did want to because we we mentioned that we were going to talk about it briefly, and I just want to mention I have seen the ABC miniseries version starring Stephen Weber. I saw I, it when it came out, so I I was a wee lad. Um, whatever year it came out, um, 97, maybe that sounds about right. Cause, Cause I want to say it was, like the, it was whole... like the 20 year anniversary kind of thing. Yeah. And, and, and it was just like, there, it was like every year you ABC was doing that, like two hours on Sunday, two hours on Monday, you were getting a new kind of King adaptation. It, it, it became like an event. It's like, Ooh, what's the, what's it going to be this year? Yep. It is. In fact, um, it is in fact, 1997, Starring Stephen Weber and Rebecca De Mornay, Will Horniff, Cortland Mead, and other Melvin Van Peebles. Pat Hingle. Pat Hingle is in this movie? What? I think Pat Hingle plays Pete he Watson. Boy. No, he Wait, plays, he was Watson. He plays he Pete was Watson. Watson. Okay. Oh, that makes complete sense. Oh, yeah. Um, Stanley Anderson's. Elliot Gould plays Mr. Ullman. Oh, man. Yes. I might, I might watch this tonight, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, you can't find it digitally, I'll tell you that. What? What? No, I've looked. I have looked. It's not on iTunes. It's not on Vudu. It is none of the places. That is really upsetting. Um, ooh, it won two primetime Emmys. Outstanding makeup and outstanding sound editing. Yeah, because I remember what they made Steven Weber look like 
towards the end as he becomes the manager caretaker mm-hmm. like that that helps the image of the idea that he's not jack anymore because like they did like the the glassy white like exorcist contacts and like he because they even talk about how like his eyes go dead and and yeah i remember i remember the scene where he's in the boiler right before it blows like that's like the one image besides that and the kind of terrible tv cgi hedge animals but once again mid 90s cgi on tv you kind of have to forgive and forget you know and it's yeah i that i definitely agree with now it is it is funny that it's funny because the book and then by extension the tv um miniseries you don't feel that it's entirely Jack's fault like when he becomes the manager caretaker it's not him anymore he's just a monster he can't help it all this stuff but when I watch Kubrick's film I'm like this is Jack Torrance's fault he's a terrible person and cabin fever got to him and that's where the end of the manifestation of the ghost come from so even though you know like sort of I mean that's not really the exact read because obviously Wendy sees some stuff and Danny sees some stuff and the ho- like obviously the hotel is you know haunted or whatever what you want to call it, it has spirits living in it it's a, a, a its presence it's it doesn't it kind of reads as a better person could have held off at this whereas Jack was really he definitely messed up but he was still trying and he really did love his son and really what this comes down to, what what The Shining comes down to, is a lack of communication. Because yes. Jack does not communicate with Wendy, and Wendy does not communicate with Jack about the things that are really important, and they hold grudges in themselves, and that's really what boils to the top, and then he tries to kill them at the end. Right, because the whole point is that you in the, in the Kubrick film, it's just a steady descent into crazy for Jack in the movie. Where in the book, there's a lot of back and forth. It's like Wendy kind of pulls him back, and you kind of see Jack. But then the hotel tries even harder and grabs and pulls him back. It Jack is in much more of a tug of war where he's the rope in between the hotel and his family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I... I don't know. I still love the film, but I am so glad that I finally had an opportunity to... Like, I had a push to read the book because it now has it definitely has it does not like diminish my love of the Kubrick film but it it definitely has uh taken its place in one of the uh one of the higher places on King's pantheon of of reading so well when i me. saw your goodreads review i was like dang i know what it takes for you to get something spoiler five stars oh, but oh, so it's that, almost never Almost, Almost never. never. I know. So when I saw it, I was like, I remember, I, I remember I actually was parking in the parking lot at work and took out my phone and had opened Goodreads for, for some, I think you had commented on my status. And then I saw your review and I was like, this is going to, this read up is going to go well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, it's just every piece, every single piece that King lays down is rewarded and it's not just rewarded textually but subtextually and it's rewarded on its basis of plot and narrative and character and theme motif um literary analysis theoretical analysis whatever you want to call it. like it's every single piece works and there's still enough ambiguity in the story to play with 
that it kind of transcends his like general like B style writing because you can say whatever you want about Stephen King being a great writer. He is, but he's not like I'm going to win a Pulitzer Prize writer. That's not his style. That's not his thing. It's not what he tries. No, he doesn't pretend. I saw him talk uh, in Connecticut a, a, a number of years ago, and he is just the coolest, funnest guy. And and but he kind of talked about like I was raised on B horror movies, and so like we could talk about how like this is great literature or whatever. He's like, yeah, I, I just write a good book and you can do whatever you want with that. That's fine with me. But the shining is a little bit better than just a good book. And I think that, um, it kind of deserves its place as in the cultural zeitgeist that kind of still exists today. Absolutely. And if you've, and speaking to your audience, if you've never read his book on writing, go treat yourself. Oh, yeah, read, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. That's a fantastic book. Yep, treat yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Great, great piece of great book about not only just like kind of a memoir on on him, but just that this is this is about writing. And this is this is kind of how I write. And it may not be how you write, but if you're interested, this is this is this is a good way to go about doing it. Um, Yeah, it's great. I this summer. Um, in June, actually went to, I went to Bangor where he lives. Um, I was on my way to Canada and I got a crack, my wife and I, we got a crack in our windshield. And so we were staying in Bangor that night cause we were, like, it was about halfway to where we were going in Canada. So, um, so we had, so I had to get it fixed in, in Bangor. It was going to take hours and hours and hours and hours. So, um, well, until they could – long story, they couldn't get the windshield right away, so we had to, like, wait. So we basically just tore it around, and so we, we went to go see, you know, his house, and we went to go see – we went to go see his house. And while we were there, maybe five minutes, I'd say about a dozen people rolled up to take pictures of it. Of course, because he also has a really interesting gate outside his house. He does. There's a nice big dragon on top of it. It's cool. Um, I know. The people in the town, when they – like, we kind of told them what we were there for, and we were passing through and everything like that, people – would always be like, oh, did you know that he also owns the house next to it? And a couple of years ago, he, he just kind of when the, it went up for sale, he bought the house right next door. So the like he's got a two house compound, and so while everyone like rolls up to take pictures of Stephen King's house, he probably lives in the house next door. Oh, that makes complete sense. Yeah, he bought you know, it as like a guest house apparently for like when family comes and whatever else. But if I were him, I would just move next door and be like, look at those suckers taking pictures of the house that's not mine. <laughs> yeah, I'm, and I am, a, I am a quite a King fan. I actually surprised myself that when I was looking up, it, I, I wanted to pull out my hardcover of The Shining that I have with the original cover from '77. Which I swear that guy looks like Warren Beatty on the cover. He does look, look like Warren pic- Beatty. He looks exactly. He looks like Warren <laughs> Beatty in a flare collar. Yes, but I have about four shelves of Stephen King hardcovers. Uh, it, like I almost have an entire bookcase that is just Stephen King, and that's with me like shedding the ones I don't like. Mm. Like if, if if I if I've read if I've read one that I didn't care for, like I've actually I've actually gotten rid of some because like ah eh, this wasn't a good one. Kind of like how the more recent it loved to make fun of bad endings. I was like, yep, thank you for being very self aware. Yeah, that book, the movie was very self aware of it and its and its poor ending, but that's okay. It's fine. Yes, but yeah. So I'm a I. It, the ability to talk about this book is just because it is obviously one of my 
favorites of his. And I'm so glad that, one, I prompted you to read it because I was like, dang it, Tim, read the dang book. Just do it. And I did and, it, and it was and it you, was delicious. Uh, yay. It was delicious. Um, and so we'll be back. We'll, you'll have to come back for Dr. Sleep. That would be that would be. Oh, I never even finished my banger story. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> there's more. There's, wait, wait, there's more. Wait, there's more. Uh, so while I so while we were up there, so we were like, oh, let's see if there's a bookstore around because haha, Bangor. You know, like there's like five bookstores in this tiny town in Maine. That's like nothing. And so, so we toured all of them, but and they were all great. Would recommend if you're ever in Bangor. But one of them is a uh, a story that strictly sells Stephen King stuff um, and like the books and you know but stuff that's signed and memorabilia and whatever else and uh, the owner we were chatting with him and he said he said Stephen's never been in the store because he like that would be very self-serving of him but he had um, there was a big flood in the store a couple of years ago and Stephen had his publisher send a bunch of stuff over to the store to replace a lot that was lost. Um, and so there was like uh, manu- like original manuscripts that are signed and like all this really cool, like all this really cool stuff that you wouldn't normally you wouldn't normally get to see. Um, but while there, they also have like uh, different kind of setups in their store windows. So, like one is pet cemetery and one is misery. And then the carpet at the like entrance to the store is the, um, the overlook hotels carpet. And inside there is the door that Jack Nicholson, uh, the, a copy of the door that Jack Nicholson swings his ax through the here's Johnny door, but they have the original movie ax that Jack Torrance wheels to try to kill his family. Oh wow, that is awesome! To which uh, he took out of a compartment, and I got to hold. And, and your wife's still okay, right? Yep, she's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Okay, good, good. Just, yeah, just well, I didn't sure. take it home with me, so you know. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Good. You know that would be different. So, but yes, I will attach. I will attach that to the show notes actually, so people can see it. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and a little a little side note. Uh, you did you hear that for the production design for Doctor Sleep, they actually busted out Kubrick's original blueprints so they could recreate the Overlook Hotel uh, to the letter. No, I didn't hear that, but that makes yeah. me even more excited. I mean, the shot. I mean, even just the shots of the, in the trailer of the flashback stuff to the to the Shining is pretty spectacular because to the like if you look at it quickly, you're like, oh, they're using footage from from the original film. That's great. Nope, that's new footage. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's redone. It's very impressive. So, just like this book is impressive, and just like you are, Scott, you're so impressive. Aww. Scott, yeah, that's stop buttering me up. Yeah. You're buttering my biscuit. Thank you very much. You're so welcome, Scott. Where can the people find you? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at scottdc27. You can, of course, find the Suicide Squadcast at Suicide Squadcast on Twitter, or you can find the entire network at suicidesquadcast.com. That's very exciting. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining me on Read Up. You, of course, are welcome back at any time because you are my one and only recurring guest. But that's that's okay. It's not really a guest show. You're like the special exception guest, and it's pretty spectacular. I'm like I'm like the crazy uncle who shows up every once in a while and turns a three minute episode into a forty five minute episode. It's what I, happens? It's, I know people are like, "Oh, The Shining! Can't wait to listen to three minutes about that." Ah, uh, fifty five <laughs> minutes. Oh, oh well. What are you gonna do?
<laughs> uh, well, okay. Well, Scott, thanks for coming, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. You have been listening to Read Up, the podcast where we talk about books intellectually and stuff. You can find Read Up on Twitter at Read Up Podcast and the host at TimothyPG13. Rate and review Read Up on iTunes and listen on any place podcasts can be found. Head over to patreon.com slash thoughtbubbleaudio to support all of your favorite Thought Bubble Audio podcasts. You can find all of the Thought Bubble Audio programs at thoughtbubbleaudio.com. Until next time, have a good read. <laughs>